0: I would venture to take a guess that may be the first time you've ever heard a genealogy read right in church. Not the most popular of places in the scriptures to go to. In fact, um, I, I've never done this in church either, but I'm just giving you permission to go to sleep this morning. You're welcome to take a nap. Uh, you're welcome to even use that to, as a selling point if you want to invite some friends for the next couple weeks. Maybe they need a time to take a nap, and they could just come in and get 30 minutes, you know, lay your head down. I was looking for even jokes about genealogies, and I'm going to read to you here are two that I thought were pretty good. A family reunion is an effective form of birth control. My family coat of arms, ties at the back. Is that normal? And that was it. Like I went through 50 and that was it. There's just not a whole lot of funny or exciting or about genealogies. So why cover genealogies? And we're gonna do it for three weeks. Like, we're starting a message today that actually won't end for three weeks. I'm going to let you go home for a while, but it won't end. Like, we don't even really have, at the end of the sermon, I'm kind of just going to stop. Why are we doing this? Why am I putting you through this? Because you've had a long holiday season and I wanted you to be able to sleep. (laughs) That's really why we're doing it. According to Paul, all scripture is inspired by God, all of it. It is all useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be fully equipped. And that includes those sections that you have in Genesis, Numbers, Chronicles, Ruth, where you have genealogies. And I went back and I I looked up some sermons on Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And I found a few, there's a handful. I mean, you can look up some of these passages on Google and there are so many sermons that have been preached. There's a handful that are on this genealogy. Every one that I looked at, it did the same thing. It looked at a big picture. It talked about Abraham. It talked about the fact that this genealogy shows that Jesus is legitimately in the line to be Messiah. And then it went on, but it never really talked about the people, like the people that make up this genealogy. Have you ever played Six Degrees of Separation? Have you ever played that? You, You are six people away from anybody else, that kind of idea. You know, Kevin Bacon was very big in this for a while, and it was, you know, six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. You could do that. We could do that today and we could show that maybe you are connected to, at some point, this famous person. And you might be, yeah, I got there in three, and that person took four. But you're not going to leave the room thinking, wow, I'm cooler than I was before because I'm only four people separated from whoever that is. However, genealogies, they do have a bit of that. If you find out that one of your great, great, great grandfathers was the president, there's a bit of pride in that. There's something to that, like, wow. And there even becomes some of the thoughts of, man, do I have leadership in me? I mean, when we think about actually people who were related to us, it says something about us, or at least we think it does. Um, The opposite side is true, too. If you ever have the bad people in your family that you kind of want to hide, You're like, I hope I'm not like that person ever. But family is different than six degrees of separation. And here's my fascination with the genealogy. It's not about the genealogy itself. It's about Jesus. We are called as believers to know him. Part of the way we can know him is knowing his family. And asking some of the questions, how was he like and not like some of his ancestors that are in this line? And so here's our sermon series for the next three weeks. We're going to look at people. I'm going to tell you a bunch of stories. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of illustrations. I don't have three points. In fact, today, honestly, I can't tell you how many points I have. I don't know yet. When the clock gets to the point where I need to stop, I'm going to stop, and then we're going to go on next week. Because we're just going to go through these, at times, really fascinating stories of people. And I'm going to say, look, here's this person and here's some things that took place in their life. I want you to know the ancestors of Jesus better than you did when you came in this morning. And I don't want you to know them just as there was this person on the, on the piece of paper and like I learned a lesson from their life. I want you to know something about them. I mean, these are actual, real people. I want you to know them. And then, in turn, see what that might tell us about Jesus. So, come with me on this journey. If you get bored, go to sleep. I won't throw anything at you. I won't send anything to you. No guilt, nothing. For this series, you can sleep. All right? All right, open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 1. Yeah, Sandra's going to have a lot of fun next week. Reading the gospel. This this week was actually relatively easy. It gets harder as you move along, and you get Rehoboam and Jehoshaphat, and I mean, they're just they're going to get some tough names. Good luck next week. Now, right before we jump into the, the family members, right, another reason we're doing this. Matthew starts his whole gospel off with a genealogy, and yet. We rarely teach on the genealogy. Imagine taking the first part of a book and just going, eh, yeah, I'm not gonna write bad that. I'm gonna start in the middle of chapter one and start reading there. I mean, it was significant enough that right at the beginning is how he starts us off. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm gonna do a few technical things for the first five minutes. Um, Stay with me. Somebody asked, so is this going to be more like a lecture versus a sermon? Eh, Parts of it. This will be part of it right now. You will find there is something called the Septuagint, it is the Greek version of the Old Testament. When our gospel writers were writing, they had a Greek version, they had a Hebrew version. They're quoting from both of them. If you were to look at the Septuagint, that Greek version, you would find in Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter five two genealogies that start exactly as this one does. Same two Greek words, in the same order, and you don't find anywhere else. It is hard to believe that Matthew wasn't at least referencing those two, and here's what the two are. It's the generations of the heaven and the earth in chapter two, and it's the generations of Adam in chapter five. It is creation genealogies is what they reference. Because there's lots of genealogies, but these are the, the beginning, like the beginning of the planets and then the beginning of the first family. And now here he is hearkening back to that. This is the beginning of new creation. In Jesus Christ, you have the beginning of new creation. You have, for all of us in this room, the chance for something new. Not only that, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he does something that you don't see in the rest of them. When you have the book of the genealogy of Adam, guess what follows? Adam's descendants. The genealogy is Adam's the top guy, and here's who comes after him, and typically his seed says something about him, but it's all about him. It's going down from the top guy. This is reversed. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but it's not starting with Jesus Christ and going to his descendants. It starts with his ancestors, and they point to him. That is a reversal of genealogies. Genealogies are about the person here as opposed to everybody we're about to study. Their lives point to Christ. They exist for him. What they do, what God wanted, it all points to Christ. It is a powerful way to start off his gospel, even if it looks really boring and generic. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, um, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Right, we have lumped the two together over time, and he's known as Jesus Christ. That would be like saying, Barack president, President's not his last name. It's the title, right? Christ means Messiah, anointed one, coming one. Jesus is a shortened version of Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves, as opposed to Yahweh is salvation, which is Joshua. But it's that shortened version. Yahweh saves, here's his Messiah. And everybody points to him. And that Messiah is the son of David and the son of Abraham. We'll talk more about these two as we move through the genealogy, but here's the brief part, because they're highlighted at the front. And if you're Jewish, they are highly significant. The father of the faith and the greatest king who ever lived. Jesus comes from the line of both. And in Abraham, you have the promise that all nations would be blessed. Not just the chosen ones, but all nations, And in David, you have the throne that would never end. And he's the son of both. All right, there's our intro. That's the lecture, short lecture part. Here's the people Abraham. All right, we can stop right there. (laughs) Enough to go very far. Um, I can tell you in studying these people that when I first started, I was least interested in Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob. You know why? Because everybody studies them. I mean, you have a whole sermon series on them. I thought, I want to know more about Amenadab. When's the last sermon series you heard on Aminadab? How many of you can say Aminadab? I mean, it, this is like, I'm like, those are the people I want to know about. Until I started studying them the best I could, more as people, not as lessons, not as like, you know, Abraham did this, so we should do this, or Abraham was like this, so we should be like this. Um, Not even theologically, that Abraham is the first who believes, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness, as Paul picks up in Romans 4 and says, look, it's always been this, not even from a theological perspective, just from a a person. Who was Abraham? Abraham. Here's my short, I'm gonna give you short snippets, because I don't have time to give you, I mean, on Abraham, we have chapters. Some of these people, we have nothing. I mean, Hezron, that's it. He's dad, and he's a son, but we don't know anything else. Like, some of them, we have almost nothing, but I'm gonna give you snippets as we can, all right? Here's Abraham. Abraham was a guy that had what appears to be a decent family business. And it's a business that he would have taken over. I mean, he kind of had it set out for him, something that would have worked. And he gets either a vision or a dream or a voice. He gets something from a divine being that he really doesn't know that well. And that divine being says to him, I want you to make a journey. I want you to go to a land that you've not seen before, that I'm not even telling you much about. I want you just to trust me. But I want you to leave behind this inheritance, this business. I want you to leave your family behind and I just want you to go. And it's gonna take you hundreds of miles to get there. You can't even go straight because there's a desert. You have to walk up and around. And I want you to go on this journey Just trust me through it, and I am going to make you the father of nations. And Abraham is a guy, now just put yourself there. Abraham is a guy who says, All right, I am going to say, Dad, I'm leaving the business. I'm going to walk away from my family. I'm going to start on this journey, even though at this point I don't have any kids. I don't have any guarantees, and I don't even know what this land, I mean, it's supposed to be good, but like, I haven't seen it before, and I'm just supposed to go, and he goes. He makes that trip, and on top of that, when he is really, really old, and he finally has a child, the promised child, Abraham is willing to continue that obedience He is willing to do something that I'm not sure any of us in this room would do it. He is willing to take that kid up on a mountain and take his life because God told him to. That's this guy. There's another side to him, though. This obedient, faithful man, there's another side to him. When he gets to the land, at one point, he allows himself to be pushed by his wife into having a kid, not in the way God was calling him to do it, partially because he's just not sure. He goes into a land to meet a king, and his wife is beautiful, and instead of trusting God to protect them, Abraham will lie. And he'll say, this is my sister. See, here is a man, two weeks ago I think we talked about faith, that faith could have both obedience and doubt. Here it is in Abraham. I mean, huge obedience and yet some pretty significant doubt as he goes through. And more than once he has to walk out and say, God, are you sure it's going to happen? And in chapter 15, he's assured. In chapter 17, he's assured. I mean, he has those struggles in him. This is one of the ancestors of Jesus. A man willing to do that, but who still struggled with his doubts. Now I'm gonna connect him to Christ in a minute, but I wanna talk about his son for a second. Because his son is the epitome of being like your dad. I mean, think about the families where if you've ever heard this said about you, or maybe, man, you are just like your dad, just like your mom. Like, boy, when you said that, it sounded just like something your dad used to say. Isaac is so much like his dad. Even to the point that he will meet up with the same king, and he will tell the same lie about his wife to protect himself. You can't imagine, he, I mean, he had to have heard that from his dad at some point or somebody that this took place. And here he is, I know how to get out of this. Dad did it and he got out of it. I'm gonna do the same thing. He just follows in the footsteps. But there's something else about Isaac that is like his dad. If you read the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, there's some details in there. Do you know who carries the wood up a mountain for his own sacrifice, Isaac. That wood is put on him. Hey, this is not a little, like two-year-old baby. This is not like I'm carrying my little child and I'm putting him on the altar. This is a grown person who is able to carry that up, and he carries the stuff for the sacrifice. He carries the altar. I mean, the wood for the altar, carries all of it up the mountain. And his dad at this point is over 100 years old. His dad is not gonna be overpowering him. I would suggest to you that within the imagery, Isaac agrees to this. That part of even strapping him down is the same thing we would do for somebody who agrees to some procedure, but we know in the midst of it something could go wrong, so we strap them down. That Isaac agreed to this sacrifice. That the same faith that was in his father, when his father would make that trip to the promised land, the same faith would he would say, you know what, I've got this son, and as Hebrews tells us, Abraham believed that even if his son died, Yahweh would bring him back to life. Because he believed so much in that promise. It seems that Isaac did too. Even amidst his doubt. Jesus had the qualities of both people on the positive without the negative. Let me just start with the incarnation. What does it take to go from divine being to incarnate human being? To go from the glories of heaven to live on our planet as one of us. And by the way, for all eternity, he would take on flesh. He didn't just become human for 30 or 33 years, however you want to reckon his age. It's permanence. Move into the wilderness. He is led out to the wilderness, much like Abraham is told go. He's just told go. But he's not told, as far as we can tell in the story, he's never said, they don't say, okay, for 40 days this is gonna happen. Or I'm gonna take you to these places. It's just, you go out into the wilderness, the Spirit leads him out there, and then he's just out there. And just imagine, day after day, no food. You're wandering this desolate place and you have no idea what God is doing or when it's gonna end. You wake up one day, is it finally? Nope, another day. And yet he keeps going. Just like Abraham making that journey, he keeps going. And when the devil comes at his weak point, and he says, I can get you out of this. I can give you food, I can give you kingdoms, I can give you a shortcut for what your whole life is about. And Jesus faithfully obeys and says, get away from me, Satan, this is God's word. And he just holds on that whole time. And then you move through his life and you get into the garden. And here is Jesus in the garden saying, If there could just be another way. Here's what we don't get a record of. We do not get a record of a voice. Of God the Father saying to him, no, I need you to go ahead and do this. We don't get comfort. We don't get a vision. Afterwards, angels will come. But in the midst of the garden, all we get is Jesus saying, please take this from me. And yet... Not my will, but yours. I will keep going. He stands before Pilate and he says, I could call a legion of angels down right now and stop this whole thing and take everything over. But that's not God's plan. All the way through his life, you see that faithfulness. Obedience to what the father wanted, no matter what it would cost him. And you see some of that in his ancestors. And some of it you don't. The doubt part, you don't get that. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob. You know, I read his story preparing for this a couple of times because Jacob's got some really powerful moments. I mean, you've got, I mean, the father of the 12 tribes, I mean, he's got some pretty good things about him. But I wanna give you one word that stuck out to me as I read his story. Weak. Jacob is manipulated by his uncle, by his mom, by his wives. He's afraid of his brother. Um, At one point, his own daughter is abused and, and instead of doing anything about it, he just stands by until his kids come in. And then his kids do something about it. And when they do something about it, he gets mad at them because it might impact him. All the way through the story, again, and I don't want to take away because he has very faithful moments. But all the way through his story, there is a weakness in him. Uh, everybody else seems to kind of control him. He won't make strong decisions about things. Now, God still uses him. I mean, God is the one that, that takes this vessel that is weak and does amazing things through him. But there's such a weakness about Jacob as I read his story. It is not necessarily a weakness in his parents, but it seems like it almost just keeps going. Like Abraham had moments where he was, a couple of them doubts, and Isaac just kind of took his dad and did the same thing, and Jacob goes even further. I almost see this line just in some ways as people, getting worse and worse as you go down into Jacob. Jacob, in that way, is the opposite of Christ. Christ, nobody could manipulate him. And they try. I mean, there are people that try. Think about the woman caught in adultery. I mean, they are basically saying, you have no choice but to do what we want. Let's throw her out there. We got the law. We get everything behind us he will not be manipulated by them. The woman that comes in and is crying at his feet and washing his feet, and the rabbis want him to admit that there's a sinner that's on you, he will not be manipulated. He won't let somebody else force him into, you know, you get this whole series of religious leaders coming to Jesus going, I'm gonna catch you in your words here. I'm gonna make you admit this. It won't happen. There is a strength in Jesus that is the kind of strength that I think all of us want. Because it's not a, I'm in charge kind of strength. Um, He never beats his chest because he doesn't need to. It's that kind of strength. Um, I'm going to embarrass somebody right now, but I'm making up a lot of this as we go along because it's stories. So I'm just going to do it. This is the kind of strength that I see in Tim Archer. Any of you who know Tim, Tim never gets in our faces and says, "Yeah, I've been through life more life than you and I'm in charge here and I've run this company and I Tim just has something about him that every time he speaks, the group of men that we're all there, we all shut up and listen. That's Jesus. There's a strength in his person, in his character, and people can't manipulate him. They can't force him into what they want. But he doesn't have to shove it in their face either. That's what we see in him, and it's not what we saw in his ancestor. But Jacob was the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah, some things start to change. Uh, Judah certainly has a couple of issues, and we'll talk about him. But Judah, he starts to epitomize strength. When they need to go to Egypt to get food, it is Judah who takes the lead, even though he's the fourth brother in line. He's not the oldest. He takes the lead, When they have to talk to their father about getting their youngest brother to come to Egypt and and Jacob does not want that. It's Judah who talks to his dad and says, look, I'll give my life for his life. I'll be the one, I'll be the surety for this. Let's take him. When they have to go talk to Joseph and they don't know he's Joseph yet. They just know he's in charge in Egypt. It's Judah who steps up and does the negotiating. There's a strength in Judah that you don't see in the same way in Jacob You really start to lose it in other people in his line. But Judah stands up, and here's where it really hits home. This is both his weakness and his strength. Judah's oldest son marries Tamar. But because of his wickedness, God kills him. Well, it now becomes the role of his next brother to give a child to Tamar, to marry her and take her as his wife. He does that, but he wants his kids only to be his kids, not his brother's kids. So he will not get her pregnant. Because of that evil, God takes his life. Well, that leaves one son for Judah to give to Tamar. And Judah says to Tamar, well, he's not old enough right now. I'm gonna hold him back in my house for a while. That for a while just keeps going on and on and on because Judah doesn't wanna lose another son. It's his only son. But rightfully, that is what's supposed to happen. And following the Lord in that time, that youngest son should have been with Tamar. Finally, Tamar takes things into her own hands. And she goes out and she dresses like she is a prostitute, a cult prostitute from the temple. And here comes Judah. And Judah is tricked into having sex with her and has a kid with her. And when Judah finds out that Tamar has, is pregnant, he wants to kill her for her unfaithfulness. Now just let that sink in. Who started the unfaithfulness? There's only one reason she's in this situation in the first place, and it's because of the guy who wants to kill her for her unfaithfulness. However, she was smart enough to take something from Judah. And so when they wanted to know who the dad was, She said, well, it's whoever these belong to. What kind of position is Judah in now? Oh, that's mine. Oops. Biggest oops in history. And yet, instead of covering it all up, instead of killing all of them, let's just preserve my honor. Let's not let people know about this. Judah steps up, and now he takes her as his wife. He's got two more kids that come into the picture. He does the right thing even if he started by doing the wrong thing. And that, that's what you see in Judah. That, that guy who's going to step up because somebody has to, even if he's not the oldest, that guy who's gonna go, oh man, how dare you? Oh, that's my fault? Okay, then I will care for these kids and I will take you in because I screwed that up. That's the kind of person I think you see. And again, we don't have a lot of the story That's Judah, and that kind of strength you definitely see in Christ. Christ is the one who is willing to wash his own disciples' feet in order to tell them what they need to do. I will step up and lead by being the example. I will step up and do what's necessary. I'm not gonna be the one sitting back here telling you all what to do. I'm going to do it. And that's how he led. He led by being the first one to step into something and saying, now be like me. Don't be like I want to be or what I think is right. Be like me. All the way through his life. That's what he was. One more, then we have to stop. Not even getting to the really interesting one. Oh, actually we are. I kind of like this guy. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And We will at some point talk about the fact that there are four women in this genealogy, uh, which is very unusual. Uh, In Chronicles, they do mention two, but it's it's unusual to have women in the genealogy, because it really was father to son, father to son, all the way down. Matthew gives us four women in this genealogy. We'll, We'll talk about them a little bit as well, but Perez, here's what I was so fascinated about by this guy. We know almost nothing about him. Like, he, he's the son of Judah, and if I'm correct, and, and I'm just up front, I'm telling you, I'm conjecturing on some of this stuff, okay? But if I'm correct, you have Abraham, who has enormous amount of faith. I mean, he's the father of the faith, but he's got some definite weaknesses, and those weaknesses seem to just kind of keep degenerating However, you hit Judah and and the strength returns and it starts going back up. I think Perez continues that trajectory and here's why. Here's what we know about Perez. He is mentioned in multiple books, uh, Genesis, Numbers, Ruth, Chronicles, even Nehemiah. Not because of what he does. Like we don't actually know what he did. But what we do know is the mention is always positive positive. It's always in relationship to his house, his clan. In fact, in Ruth, he is used as a blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez. This guy had some kind of amazing success in his life, so much so that he was looked on as like, this, this would be the genealogy where it'd be Perez, and here's all the amazing things that happened in his house. Yet. Look at where he comes from. Could you imagine if your mom tricked who should have been your grandfather into being your dad? Your dad wanted to kill her. I mean, there's a scandal right here that is pretty awful. And yet, it does not hold Perez back. Here's something that I would say to us. Your parents, my parents, your grandparents, your family, all of us, it has a huge impact on who we are. There's no doubt about that. But it does not have to define us. Perez could have grown up thinking he is an outcast, things are awful, he could have been that loner. And instead, he takes this scandalous birth And he becomes this house that in Ruth, they're actually saying, may you be blessed like that house. This guy took a bad situation and didn't let it define him. I would say the same thing would happen with our Lord. I mean, there's definitely some scandal there. Um, A virgin birth is not going to be considered a virgin birth by the people around them. It's going to be considered as two things. Mary was unfaithful. And Joseph was not strong enough to put her away. He was willing to risk his reputation for that. This whole family could have been bad. And yet none of that stops Jesus from being the person that he is. Whatever those rumors were as he was growing up. And at one point there is a Jewish rumor that says it was a soldier that was with Mary. No matter what those things were, they don't stand in his way. And in fact, he takes the best of his dad. Hey, here's what we know about Joseph. Joseph was a faithful Israelite. Joseph is a guy who knows how to balance law and grace. Because when it comes to his wife, what he does is he knows that according to the law, he cannot stay with her. But according to mercy and grace and humanity, He can't just kick her out or he can't just publicly humiliate or ruin her life. So Joseph's initial thing is I'm gonna follow the law but I'm gonna put her away quietly. But then his faithfulness comes through when God says, no, that's my child. I want you to be with her. And Joseph says, no matter what it costs me, I will be with her. I will do what God wants and I will take her back to my home. I will have no intercourse with her until the child is born. I will raise the child as my own and be faithful to the Lord. That kind of faithfulness where reputation doesn't matter, only God's will does, where law matters, but so does mercy, that's the epitome of Christ. The only time you see something kind of negative in his family that he doesn't seem to have gotten is when his family comes to try to get him because they think he's crazy. They want to strap him up and put him away. And you know what? It's not because they're so much worried about him. It's because they're worried about what that means for their family. He's the eldest son. That is bad for honor. If the eldest son is doing the crazy wacko things Jesus is out there doing, people are going, he's nuts. What does that mean about your family? They are going out to get him because of reputation. Jesus could care less. Reputation for him, there's only one person that he cares about who views his reputation in a certain way, his father. Everybody else, whatever you wanna think of me is fine. But Joseph was like that. He saw some of that in his dad as he was being raised, that the right things were put in the right spots. And the other things he doesn't seem to have gotten. All right. Next week, we're just going to pick up with the next person and just keep going. Right. So you have three options. One, you can think, this was kind of interesting. I've not heard some of these stories about these people, and I want to learn more, and you can come back and do that. Two, you could come back and take a nap. Three, I'm telling you up front, for the next two weeks, we're going to be in the genealogy. If you want to skip church... That's between you and God. (laughs) So, New Year's resolutions. Probably you made them. I made some. I thought these were kind of fun. Dear God, my prayer for 2016 is a fat bank account and a thin body. Please don't mix it up like you did last year. I'm planning on finding new and interesting things to hate about my job in 2016. And this is my favorite. My New Year's resolution is to break my New Year's resolutions. That way I succeed at something. My New Year's resolution, I want to be in better shape. Um, And I've been saying that for a long time. Um, I want to be in better shape. We worked in the garage for like four hours yesterday. I'm so sore and winded from that. Like, we weren't even doing very much. I'm just not in good shape. My wife wanted to help me. So, for Christmas, she got me a Fitbit. As if I need something to tell me how out of shape I am, which is basically what this does. It just goes at the end of the day yeah, you walked nothing. You did a half mile sitting in your chair. You're awesome. But the problem with Fitbits, at least so far, is that they actually congratulate you for for being mediocre. Like my first few days, it's like, yes, you got a new badge. I didn't do anything. I did the same thing I always do. Why should I do more? I'm getting badges. I mean, and I've got a bunch since then, The one day that it really got, I did like, I don't know, 15 flights of stairs or something, and it was very excited for me. It was like, you've got two badges and all these stairs, and I'm like, I don't ever want to do that again. The reason I went those flights of stairs, my children ate something bad the day before. I had like five diapers and like three wipes. I mean, it was. I never want to do that again. I'm not sure what I think about Fitbit yet, but I do know that Fitbit can't change me. It can draw out things. It can show me that I don't walk enough. It can show me I don't sleep enough. It can't make me sleep more. Well, I wish it could. Uh, As we talk about these people, as you think about your life, hearing the story and thinking to yourself, you know what? I think for too long I've been living in the shadow of whatever it is. An uncle that was a terrible person I thought I was gonna be a terrible person. To think about, you know, these people that have this amazing faith. Wow, I wish I could be like that. Telling you the stories is not going to change anything. You've got to actually look at you and see where you are connecting with who these people are, with who Jesus is, with what God's calling you to. And make a change in your life. I mean, instead of just saying I want to be different over and over and over again, make a change. Do something different. And I'm not telling you that you can force yourself into being a spiritual giant or something. I understand that the Holy Spirit has to work in your life. You need to be praying. You need to be in God's Word. I get all those things. But, like, make a change. See where God takes that in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. As we look at some of his ancestors and spiritually our ancestors, as we learn about them, help us to learn more about our Lord as well. Help us to see the ways in which we are like them and not like them, the ways in which we're like him, but also not. Father, help us to see the areas of change that this new year you may be calling us to. In areas of faithfulness, in mercy, in areas of trusting you when we don't have answers, in areas where our sin is taking over parts of our lives and we're just letting it instead of turning to you and repenting and seeing what you are calling us to. Lord, in 2016, help us by the power of your Spirit to be different people, more like our Savior. And it's in his name that we ask it, amen.